Content may not be appropriate for all audiences. Listener's discretion is advised. to WTF Are You Talking About, the podcast where we don't know what we're talking about until you do. I'm Katie. And I'm Decker. And we are here to ask each other, what the fuck are you talking about? So this is how it's going to work. We've got six categories of topics, and then the next episode will be determined by the roll of a die. Oh. So the categories we have are true crime. True crime. Yep. I word's good. True crime. Paranormal. Wait, did you not say true crime? I said true crime. True crime. Because, okay. yep, let's talk about crime. Let's not talk about crime. <laughs> is it kind of spice? Uh, I don't think so. I'm thinking time. Okay. Uh, yeah. Whoops. Okay. So I can't go. <laughs> I was like, I don't <laughs> think I'm familiar derailed. with the spice. Anyway, the categories are true crime, paranormal, history and education, science, entertainment, and current events. We will use an eight-sided die, and if you roll a one, then you have to roll a six-sided die for those same categories, but then the topic has to be local. And if you roll an eight, then you get to pick your category. So let's crack into it. Decker, what the fuck are you talking about today? Well, I got true crime last time. You sure did. I sure did. And often I was looking for uh, something a little bit interesting. Because um, you don't really... I mean, most go-tos with true crime are like... I mean, the easy ones feel like, like serial killers or stuff that's... Just really bizarre. Mm -hmm. But it's only bizarre like in a more like either grotesque or like disturbing fashion. This one I found by accident. And I thought it was interesting for different reasons. Because this is the disappearance of Bobby Dunbar. Mm. Have you heard of this one? I don't think so. Good. Okay. I don't remember ever hearing this on any other podcast <laughs> I listened to. So I was like, I'm going for this one. Um... <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. So, with that being said, um, the disappearance of Bobby Dunbar, or their full name is Robert Clarence Bobby Dunbar, probably was like a nickname, um, was uh, the firstborn son of Leslie and Percy Dunbar. And they were of, and I'm going to probably say this wrong, but I think it's Opelousas, Louisiana, I think is how you say that. Um, I can't contest that. <laughs> cool. Good. For everyone in Louisiana, let me know. Um... But uh, this one's peculiar because this disappearance actually spans, the, the discussion of it spans almost 100 years. Jesus Christ. Right? I know, it's like, that immediately caught my eye. I was like, whoa, okay. So, um, to start with, okay, so uh, Bobby was the son of Leslie and Percy Dunbar. Uh, he was born in April 1908. Okay. Uh, and uh, in August 1912, they took a fishing trip to uh, Swayze Lake in St. Landry Parish, Louisiana. Okay. Now, for this, um, earlier that morning, um, there were, and this was on uh, Friday, August 23rd of 1912 is when this happened. Um, they had 11 people there, including Alonzo, which was uh, the, I believe that was the brother uh, and then we had the mom, the dad, and uh, dad and family friends. Right? Now, dad had to go to work. Um, 
And Bobby was really upset about that because he wanted to hang out with his dad. And when Fair. right, and when dad <laughs> said that he's like he had to go, uh, I guess Bobby got really upset. He ended up breaking the strap for his straw hat. Okay, calm down. Right. <laughs> I mean, no, this this kid is four. Right. So think about okay. that way. Like, like okay, still fine. kind of a tamper tantrum age. Like, hopefully not tamper tantrum. <laughs> Words. We're not good at them. Control so your temper. <laughs> Be better than us. Okay. Um, <laughs> so um, there are eleven people there, including his family. He wanted to go. Oh, that's what it is. He wanted to go fishing with Paul, which was a uh, so Paul um, had a nickname for Bobby uh, called Heavy, which. That's what, one of the things I want to talk about. Apparently, that was an affectionate name, and Bob, uh, uh, oh my gosh, Bobby, uh, he wasn't necessarily a fat kid. He was described as stout, right? So, not necessarily as thin or like, you know, like athletic. So, right now, I'm imagining Gregory from Over the Garden Wall. You lost me because I still have yet to watch that. Oh my god, the kid with the teapot on his head? Oh, for fuck's sake. Yep, nope, nope. Oh, I just saw one gift. Okay, I'll put some music inside of there. We need some, like, elevator I'm, technical music. <laughs> right, I'll come with some filler music. <clears throat> I'll, I'll create, you know what it is? I'll have a, I'll have a VL. This is what I'm imagining. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. No, I, uh, yeah. Okay, that's, it. yes. So, kind of like that. Not necessarily, like, fat, but just kind of, like, I guess the word described as big boned is how oh people typically say. Oh. Um, <laughs> so with that, um, they go out to go uh, fishing. And later, uh, they were called back for lunch. And Paul put his uh, brother Alonzo on his shoulder. So, so Alonzo, again, when I say brother, that's Bobby's brother, Alonzo. Not Paul's brother. But Paul puts Alonzo. And Bobby is the youngest? Bobby is the youngest of four. I'm not sure the age of Alonzo. I know Paul is an adult. Okay. He's an adult. So they go out fishing. Paul puts Alonzo on his shoulder saying, uh, I guess the words exactly are, um, get out of the way, heavy, or I'll run you over. Oh, for fuck's sake. But I guess it was like playful banter because Bobby said back, you can't do it. You're no bigger than me. Okay. Right? So right. And I guess that was like typical Bobby fashion is what I heard. <laughs> and one thing I do want to preface here is finding information for this was really tough. Because I honestly only had about three different sources I could pull mm-hmm. from. And the only other source I really wanted to get was a book that I could not get in less than a day. So, Perfect. Right? <laughs> so um, with that, uh, but there's a book on it. Really interesting. You guys should check it out. I think it's on Amazon. Um, but uh, it also says that there were two other men there. So um, that kind of caught my attention because... As far as I could find, they weren't listed as to who those men were. So I know they're family friends, but we don't know who oh, it was. CJ, oh, you brought us a present. You hunt good. Um, he has hunted a uh, jingly bell toy. Yeah, it's like a, like a red tuft. If you, so if you hear any jingling, it's our panther. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's two other men there. They're coming back. Now, when they get back to the house, apparently Bobby's nowhere to be found. Right? Oh dear. So they left with this adult and three other people plus Bobby. And they come back without Bobby. Now, one of the things I find interesting, and I think several people pointed out, <coughs> excuse me, um, what several people pointed out was that it's interesting that you have someone who's very affectionate towards someone else. They even have a nickname for them. Mm-hmm. 
and yet they come back not knowing where Bobby is. Hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like it's like, heavy, haha, whatever. Like, but if you're close to someone like that, or in the, if that's, I guess, actually a term of like endearment towards someone, you would think that, especially for someone so young, they would be paying attention to Yeah, you'd to be more are. attentive of them. Especially because I'm not sure, I'm not sure how old uh, Paul, uh, Paul is. No, not Paul. Alonzo. I'm not sure how old Alonzo is, but it sounded like he was older. I mean, he's Bobby. old enough to be able to put a four-year-old on his shoulders. Yeah. Um, well, no. So the one putting the four-year-old was Paul, the adult. Oh. Alonzo's okay. Bobby's brother. I retract that statement. That's okay. That's okay. There's a lot. Rejected. <coughs> okay. Um, so with that there, they get back, they can't be found, um, Lessie, uh, gets all, um, upset, and she tries calling for him, and I guess she passes out. Uh, then, as, um, the dad's coming back, they, um, they ended up alerting the authorities to come help with the search, because they still couldn't find him. Uh, the dad came back, and then ended up trying to look for them as well. After not finding them, um, the, the authorities tried looking for him by the lake because I guess our thoughts were that if he went missing, he probably like is in the lake where he drowned or something oh. like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I think is interesting because that doesn't make sense in my eyes. If he's walking back, how could he have drowned? They're leaving the lake. Mm-hmm. Right. So they must be a good distance away from it. Like unless Bobby decided to hightail it back and go dive into the lake, <laughs> you know? So it's a little weird, but they tried looking at that and they, the way I do that, <coughs> okay the way that they do that is they try throwing dynamite into the lake and using um like large hooks to kind of drag across the bottom of the lake to try and pull up any corpses um not, dredging is that what that's called dredging mm-hmm. okay um but they they do that and the um and they don't find him inside of there they thought he might have been eaten by a gator um, and then to see, like, if maybe he was in the water, they tried using the hat as an example with the broken strike to see how long it would float. And it floated for, like, a, like, several hours, right? So it lasted for quite a long time. And they were still doing this in that same day. So the odds are very unlikely that they, they that the hat wouldn't have been floating somewhere from the sea. Now, another thing I kind of want to point out is if the strap is broken on the hat, it's also possible that if he was to drown... Maybe his hat fell off of offside of the <coughs> lake. <coughs> Bam. This is a <coughs> gonna be rough barely. Alright. So, um <coughs> with that being said, they also tried searching the train tracks and talk with people that were nearby, like any stragglers to see if anyone had taken him or seen him. They noticed that there was a set of footprints kind of leading up to the tracks. But they didn't get anything further on that. Now, at this point, during the search, the mom was getting so stressed out that she was getting ill. And they had to go back home. And they end up, uh, by August 26th, they reach out to New Orleans to um, kind of see if they can get some further assistance. Because I think that maybe he was nearby. I guess it was about it's over 100 miles uh, from where they were at. So are they thinking that it's more an abduction now? Right, they're thinking that, because they're not seeing any evidence. They, they um, <coughs> looked at gators, they couldn't find any bodies. They looked in the water, they looked nearby, they had a whole bunch of people there, weren't finding anything. Give me a second. <coughs> there we go, that feels better. 
All right. So now that we're back, <laughs> I'm definitely going to cut that out. Um, August 26th, right, they reach out to the police. Um, the, his dad had gone down there to distribute, like, several hundred copies of, like, pictures and descriptions of him and even spoke with, like, reporters and news outlets. Um, and they tried to uh, kind of paint a very clear picture of him. I guess he was... He had light hair, blue eyes, fair skin, and he had, uh, and this is going to be really hard to spot, because he had a birthmark on a toe that got burnt when he was really young, and supposedly uh, the toe on one foot is smaller than the other, the one that got burnt. So it's... He had a lucky fin. <laughs> is that what that's called? <laughs> oh, oh, my kid! Yeah! Oh, yeah. Um, so uh, he has that, so you can't really easily see that, but... Um, eventually they had also put out an offer of a thousand dollars back then, which is $22,000 our time for anyone to return him. No questions asked. They wouldn't press charges or anything. They just wanted their son back. So, but no one of course bit that. Now, eventually a tip came in of that, um, William Cantrell Walters had taken uh, or he was in uh, South Mississippi at the time, he had a boy very similar to the description of what Bobby was listed as. So, um, apparently this kid was walking around his bare feet because the person said they couldn't identify the birthmark because there was so much grime on it. And I'm hoping that if someone's out and about in the streets that they're just not, that they're not wearing shoes, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, it's 1912 at this point. I'm not sure what the roads were like back then, but I'm sure that wasn't comfortable. Yeah. Um... Well, maybe that's typical. I don't know. Uh, but they ended up detaining him and to look at the boy, and they found that he did have a birthmark on his foot and a mole on his neck, I guess, previous to descriptors that were similar to Bobby. So it looked like a very solid uh, chance that it was him. And so um, I guess at this point, the family decided to come down to co-confirm, and they, uh, the mom, uh, at first she was... She felt really good about it. I mean, and here's the thing about this story is there are a lot of discrepancies. Some news agency says that uh, as soon as the, the child saw her, they he immediately exclaimed, mom ran up to her and like hugged her. Other points are like where he, he shouted out his brother's name and then kissed him. Um, right. And there's other accounts where it's like the, the mom and dad went there and they're like, uh, he kind of looks like her son. His eyes are smaller. but mm-hmm. And so Wait, what? Yeah. His eyes are smaller. I mean, that can fluctuate, I'm sure, right? I don't know what that means. Like, they're I closer think, together, or... I'm thinking maybe, like, the size, like, the sockets, maybe, like, kind of, okay. like, you know, you know like, like some people have, like, really big eyes, like, I, I can get really expressive with my eyes, and other people have, like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't look at eyes that much. So, or at least I don't study people's eyes. I'm like, huh, your eyes, they got smaller. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, uh, eventually, the, the mom gives him a bath, and then it's at that point that basically since she's inspecting his body that she's a hundred, she says that she's a hundred percent certain that that's her kid. Mm-hmm. Right now, also inspecting his body is a really creepy thing to say. Just throwing that out. You there. have to be thorough <laughs> if you're going to. Because here's the thing about this, right? The, uh, Walter, right? This is a kid that he had with him, and I guess a lot of his stories varied. Like it was his kid, it was his sister's kid, it was such a like, and he could he didn't have a straight story. Which is not good if you are kidnapping someone. No. But alas, um, eventually he came to say that it was, oh gosh. Do, do, do. 
Got it here somewhere. Uh, of Julia, it was Julia Anderson's illegitimate child. Okay. So the reason why she comes up is, I guess, Walter's brother and her had a fling, and she had a kid. Um, so at this point, she was a single mom. Um, Walter said that Julia had given him the the boy, and she said that that was true. But she had more details to it, where she said she said it was only supposed to be a couple days. And this happened back in February of 1912. And ah. if you remember, the start of this story was in August. Yeah. So, a little longer than a couple days. Just a little bit. Right. Um, and then uh, Walter uh, ended up reaching out to the family, asking for them to change their minds. Because otherwise, in, in the state of uh, Louisiana, kidnapping is a capital offense. Right. So, he'd get the death penalty for that. Um. Right. Now, to kind of uh, go further on with this here, we are going to do, 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 let's talk about what that boy's name was. So, his name, according to Walter, was Bruce Anderson. Okay. Now, uh, a lot of people like to like try and say that, oh, that name sounds a little fake, right? It's like someone having like, mm-hmm. like a... Uh, John Smith. Right? Like, it's something kind of vague or like two first names. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, I'm not sure. John Jacob. There we go. Jingle, Jingle Heimer Schmidt. Schmidt. His name is that. <laughs> no, you can't get derailed. Okay. Look what I've done. Uh, uh, man, they said it was Bruce. Um, now, she is unmarried. Uh, she worked as a field hand for the family. And she, um, again, she only wanted him to be gone for a couple days. And according to newspapers, uh, Anderson was presented with... Um, apparently five different boys to confirm that it was her son. Now, I know some time has passed. I feel like it should not be... That's not a lot of time for someone to grow, necessarily, or change a lot physically. And even then, it shouldn't be hard for you to identify who your child is, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. To, like, at this point, to a certain extent, it's only been a couple months. I would hope you have enough memory to recognize someone. Right? It's like friends I haven't seen for years. Mm-hmm. I can see them like, oh, I know exactly who you are again. Because they either left an impression or, I don't know. I do. Or I just stuck. Um, I mean, I like to think that I would I would recognize my cats if I had not seen them. But will her. they recognize you? I, I, Tune in next time. I would like <laughs> to think so. <laughs> okay. Um, but with that being said, oh, she's oh, been a bunch of different boys, including Oops. the boy who was claimed by the Dunbars. And when he was present, he gave no indication that he recognized her. Now, I want to backtrack a little bit um, with this because uh, Leslie, she went to go see him and he had no response to her. Right. She go like to like hug him or do some sort of action. And it was almost as if he was indifferent or like he wasn't really understanding what's happening kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And while he was gone for several, uh, several days at this point until like this kind of uh, well, I guess at this point, I think it was uh, a couple weeks afterwards. They ended up playing this kid, right? That's not long for you to forget who your mom is. Yeah. Right? So that immediately was a red flag. Like, okay, like, if you are missing your family, it's not like he was quite a character. I don't think he'd be someone to be so shy. Mm-hmm. Um, but and I guess she asked, <laughs> if, uh, asked if he was the boy recovered. And the answer was not given, but she declared that she was unsure. Okay. 
so that that's also disheartening to me because the, the reason why I get a little upset about that aspect is later on um she eventually did say that it was him but word had already spread that she had not identified him positively the first time alright and then they start questioning her moral character because and this uh this for me I don't agree with I, don't, I think it's a bad way to judge people mm-hmm. um I mean, there's some things that she definitely should be judged for, but I guess she's had three children with two other men out of wedlock. She was also described as, let's see, um, not remembering her kid, right? Uh, thought of a pro- uh, thought of as a prostitute, illiterate, and she lost all of her kids within a year. I'm not sure what happened to one of them, but they mentioned that she had a daughter who... Um, he got put up for adoption, and th- the son, of course, went missing as well. And there was one article that was particularly harsh, and I don't think it's how journalists should necessarily act, but because it sounds very biased, but it says she had not seen her son since February 1912. She had forgotten him. Animals don't forget, but this big, coarse country woman, several times a mother, she forgot. So... The problem I have with that is I do agree it is concerning that she does not remember her kid. But it's very accusatory. But it's very accusatory. Not your job. You're taking into question her actions previous to this mm-hmm. to be able to identify her child. That's mm-hmm. something I'd say that's because she didn't care because if her child's been gone for months, why in the world did she not go reach out to the family to have her mm-hmm. kid back? Right? There's a whole bunch of things that I did not find answers for. Mm-hmm. Um... After that, though, they ended up going to court, and uh, when they went there, she couldn't afford an attorney, right? She was a a farm uh, or a field hand. She wasn't making a lot of money. She was a single mother. So by the time that she had gone there and was trying to do the trial, um, it ended up being appointed by the the court. uh, court, uh, Wow, I can't say words. The court-appointed arbiter. He ruled uh, that the boy was the Dunbar's son. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, almost uncontested. And she ended up leaving town, and William went through a two-week trial period, uh, and he was convicted of kidnapping, and he was sentenced for life in prison. Now, eventually, about two years later, he was granted a new trial based on a technicality, and, uh, and then he was free. He was considered not guilty. So, the reason why that's important is another thing that could have factored into why the kid wasn't acting towards his mother in a sense was right after they got the kid back, supposedly he was showered with gifts. And a young child of four is probably going to have a hard time wanting to do something necessarily if they feel like they're getting rewarded, mm-hmm. right? Because I guess he got a pony and a bicycle. And then he got he then he got to like ride down on a fire truck. Jesus Christ. Right? And so it's like, okay, I've been found. So like let's say he is this. Well then yeah, um, you fucking found me. This Bruce. is awesome. Let's say he's Bruce. Mm-hmm. Right? If you all of a sudden I go to a new family and they're taking really good care of me and they're shadowing me for gifts, I might second guess my original family. Because I'm young. I don't mm-hmm. understand that's not the consequences of that. What what's I'm really getting That's how four year olds work. Right. <laughs> Uh, but some might say uh, people don't think that's necessarily like was with ill intent because if you think about it, 
you just got your son back. Mm-hmm. Right? And if you feel like you got your son back, you're probably going to do everything in the world yeah. to just you take that moment to really share the joy that you're you have so with your kid, right? Because it's like, oh, wow, I didn't lose my kid. They're not dead in a gator. <coughs> in a gator. Right? <laughs> <coughs> there we go. Okay, so um, now after that, everything was all finalized. It was basically said to be, you know, done and over with. He didn't kidnap her, but I guess it was his son. So I guess, um, what was I saying? Uh, I came up with a good name for him. I think I called him. I called him. I called him Brucey Andy Bar, right? Uh, okay. Put his names together. Uh, do do do. So now he's he he lives. He eventually finds someone, gets married. They live happily. He has kids. He dies. End of story. So you'd think. After that, though, he eventually. Um, it resurfaced back up in 1999 because uh, the granddaughter, Margaret Dunbar Cutright, went to go dig further into this because she was always really fascinated when she was young. She'd always ask about the stories. She really wanted to, um, I mean, it's just something that she really enjoyed. So she thought she'd dig deeper on it because she always felt it was weird how there's always like two sides were so adamant that um, either it was their kid or the other. She ended up looking through 400 plus news articles that she had in a scrapbook from the whole occasion, from the family that mm-hmm. collected them all, and saw a whole bunch of discrepancies between each one. And, like, the previous ones I mentioned, where it's like, he knew Lessie, or um, he didn't know her at all, right? And so all these conflicts made her suspicious, and she tried looking at different, like, courts and, like, blogs and uh, articles, and she ended up deciding to try DNA. Okay. Because... So wait, what year is this now? 1999. Okay. So, it's not as advanced as today's day and age, but she decided to take a DNA test to see if she, technically, was a Dunbar. Okay. Okay? And by doing that, what she did was she asked for Alonzo's, uh, I believe it was Alonzo's son, to give a DNA test. Because Alonzo technically was a Dunbar, whereas okay. as Bobby weren't sure about it. Yeah. So, if we test her genetics with them, it should, it should, it should be a very close match. Uh-huh. Right? Like, I'm not sure how genetics go, but I'm going to assume probably like 95%, something to be very significant. Um, and they take this test, and they found out um, it, there was definitely not a match. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. So, not only is she not a Dunbar... I guess our family hates her after this point because they're like, they're like, let it die. You know, like it's over and done with. But I mean, I think everyone should get closure for that fact. Even if it's, you know, it's over with Mm -hmm. people still want to know. So she takes this now to be clear though, this was only done with the Dunbars though. It was not done with the, uh, Oh my gosh. uh, So many names. What did I say? Anderson, right? Yep. The Andersons. So, and I guess, uh, Julia, she her son had offered to give a DNA test, but it was never reciprocated, and he ended up dying. Oh, okay. Right. So I'm not sure if there's anyone else in that family or anyone that's remotely close to Julia in terms of like gen- uh, genetics, but they never did a DNA test with them, which that is more curious to me. I'm surprised that they didn't do that because okay, you know you're not a match. 
if they did that with them and that also came as a match, then either or that means that their tests were because it should be either or. If they got yeah. another kid, then we got a whole different problem. Um, but yeah, that was never reciprocated, and unfortunately, we will probably never know whatever happened to uh, Bobby. Wow. And I guess, uh, I guess, the the now currently deceased Bobby. I guess he was okay with that because his son asked him. How do you know that you're you? And he's like, well, I know that I'm me. I know that you're you. And that's all I need to know. That's also a really vague question to ask a child. No, that was a child asking his dad. That's a really vague question for a child to ask an adult. Right. That's I just know. a vague question. Right. And so, because I, I guess it didn't bother <laughs> umbridge. him. Umbridge. I take umbridge. But a lot of people now think that it's def- he's definitely wasn't Anderson. And that since he was kidnapped, he was legally kidnapped. Mm-hmm. From this mom. And that's where, like, yeah, that's where I thought it was really interesting because you have a family that kind of feels like they got closure, another family that basically lost their child, and yeah, just kind of nuts. So, yeah, that was the disappearance of Bobby Dunbar. Wow. Right? Kind of interesting, though, right? Yeah, it's, 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 it's weird. It's very weird. Um, and especially at the very end, it is. It's very sad that there was no DNA match. Because had there been, that would have been amazing. And that also means that uh, William definitely should have gotten the capital sentence. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Another theory that people throw out is that maybe William, either A, he kidnapped Bobby with William, or not with William, with Bruce, and that just something happened to Bobby, and so he just still had Bruce, or that something happened to uh, Bruce, and then he kidnapped Bobby, right? But, I'm going to say, I know DNA, that's almost 20 years old now, of technology. I'm sure it'd be better nowadays. Uh, I would hope it's better nowadays, but yeah, I just thought that was very um, very intriguing. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would agree. Cool. Very strange. Yeah, with that, I'm going to go ahead and take a quick cough break. You do that. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Made it sound like you were going to be leaving the area. All right. I posted something. I posted our first ever post on our, our Instagram and Twitter. Our first first what? Our first ever post. Oh! Yeah. Oh. So that's exciting. Sorry. For, I got really close to that mic, so if I just yelled in your ears, <laughs> that was not meant to happen. I am sorry. Everyone was like, what do you mean your first ever post? It's This is the 10th episode. <laughs> yeah. Welcome, welcome to the past. <laughs> Time travel. It's a thing. All right, well, Katie. Here's that. Thank you. I would love that. What the fuck are you talking about? Well, I got a wild last time. You sure did. Uh, and I also decided to talk about true crime, but I went in a very different direction. Oh. Because I, I remember I gave you a little <coughs> a little bit of a, hey, maybe stay away from culty type things. I forgot all about that. Well, I'm glad you stayed away from that, so. I sure did. Good job. <laughs> uh, so. What, what kind of cult are we getting into? Is it like a happy cult? Is it like a cult that steals away people slowly and just nothing ever happens, but they're just completely ostracized? No, so this is this is an end of times cult, which we're not going to get into the cult itself a whole lot because honestly, like they deserve their whole own segment. I was like, because I kind of and know like, of one cult that definitely was super end of times, other than 
the one that we know about. I think did you tell me about last time the uh, the one with it was in California? I think they had the video. They had professional editors and stuff. Uh, Are you thinking of Heaven's Gate? Yes, Heaven's Gate. Thank you. This is not Heaven's Gate. Okay. Um, but like I this this cult deserves their whole and calling them a cult is maybe a. I mean, they were definitely a cult at this point. Before that, maybe not so much. I'd love to hear about the religion. But, I mean, yeah, it's it's a whole thing. Like, they deserve their own segment. I'm going to give them that and not try to, like, shove it into this. Because I'm going to specifically talk about one event. That's a great history role. Yes. I mean, history slash true crime would also fit in there as well. Because the guy who was their leader is fucking nuts. Okay. So. There's an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Mm, okay. That was founded in 1929 called the Shepherd's Rod. Um, they were also known as the Rod Davidians. I remember the name Davidians. I remember it, you telling uh-huh. me to stay away from the Davidians. Okay, <laughs> okay. I know nothing about them. So, in 1942, they officially changed the organization's name to the Davidian Seventh-day Adventists. Although they were still referred to as the Rod by both, like, members and outsiders. Okay. Why did they jump off? Am I jumping ahead? Um, I don't really go into that because, like, that's a whole thing. Gotcha. But it was, that's like, people were, that were like, I'm going to, I don't believe that. I'm going to believe this something else. Just so like normal they, Christianity. They, they split. Okay. So the Rod had their headquarters on a property known as the Mount Carmel Center near Waco, Texas. Okay. It reached its peak in the 1950s, splintered off into a couple of different factions after the death of its leader in 1955. One of those factions retained about 77 acres of the Mount Carmel property, and they are known as the Branch Davidians. So if you haven't guessed it, we're talking about the Waco Siege. Is that that the one with the farmhouse? What? Or am I thinking of a totally different cult? I have no fucking clue what you're talking about. Like a farmhouse in a small town where they gathered up a whole bunch of people and eventually like got arms and stuff. And I'm not like okay. No, no, just go. I mean, I'll figure it out if this is the one. You're kind of like in the area, but it was not a farmhouse. Okay. So, after a lot of infighting, splintering, etc., blah blah blah, we get to the late 1980s, and David Koresh has proclaimed himself the group's final prophet. That name sounds very familiar. So when we watched the Halloween special for the, car, the Ghost the Adventures, yeah, yes. Zach, 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 Zach Bagans, Bagans rolled up uh, in David Koresh's uh, car. A, he's very much a pansy. I want to say that right now. Very much a pansy. God. I wish he would have opened that divic box. <laughs> but also, <laughs> and I, mm, mm, that's fine. I have that's a lot of feelings day. about that because okay. they've made a whole big deal. But like, oh, I don't think I can open this. But like, it's been opened before. So I, mm, <sighs> Lots of feelings. Anyways. Okay, all the feelings. <laughs> but we all know who wasn't going to open it because he's a fucking fanby. Anyways. <laughs> so lots of infighting, blah, blah, blah. We get to David Koresh being like, I am the final prophet. I am in charge. And so there, other people are referring to them as the Koreshians because they okay. were followers of David Koresh. Gotcha. So they are living at Mount Carmel. And there was like a whole fucking set of insane stuff that happened to get to this point mm-hmm. which in my notes i literally wrote oh i spelled that weird i will do an entire segment on the branch davidians and david crash because they deserve their own thing not smushing it into this that should happen <laughs> so tell me interested don't talk about the branch davidians i'm calling it now <laughs> i will not so the branch davidians had split into two factions there were those that were behind david crash and those that were behind george Roden. Okay. Or Rodden. Not quite sure how to pronounce that. 
The Koreshians gained control of the Mount Carmel compound through a series of violent shootouts because this is in fucking Texas. I mean, so Texas. <laughs> Texas for the win? Texas for the not win. Okay. So February 28th, 1993, at 9.45 a.m., the ATF, which is the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, Firearms yeah. for now on, I'm just going to refer to them as ATF. ATF. They attempted to execute a search warrant relating to sexual abuse charges and illegal weapons violations. This escalated into a 51-day siege, or standoff, those words uh -huh. mean the same thing, uh, resulting in the death of four ATF agents, six wounded ATF agents, and 82 dead Branch Davidians. Six of which were killed with the initial raid, 76 killed at the final assault. Throughout this whole thing, so going from the initial raid to the end, 35 Branch Davidians did exit the compound. So, there, I mean, there was a good chunk of people that were on the compound. Okay. So, ATF attempts to raid the compound, resulting in an intense firefight. They initially started their investigation in 1992, where there were reports, because there were reports of automatic gunfire at the Carmel compound, just by people in the area that were like, whoa, that's a weird sound. Also, I think there was a UPS agent that was like, I've been delivering some real weird packages to this place. Uh, maybe look into that. Also, worthy of noting is that the Branch Davidians, one of the ways they were making their money is they had a gun business. Okay, so they were selling firearms as well to uh -huh. make a profit. Yeah, and so like, and but this wasn't something that was not well known. Like, they would go to gun shows and things like that to to sell their guns. Do they make their own guns, or do they buy them and resell them? Were they a reseller? Eh, we'll get into that. I okay. feel I, we'll, we'll sort of get into that. It's kind of both. Sorry, I have so many questions. <laughs> so the Branch Davidians had a weapons weapons dealing business. Okay. On June thirtieth, nineteen ninety two, ATF agents, and that is Agent Aguilar Aguilar no, <laughs> Aguilera and Skinner, they spoke with their the Branch Davidians weapons dealer, which was Henry McMahon. He tried to get the ATF agents to speak with Koresh over the phone. Uh, Koresh was like, hey, I will let them inspect our weapons. They can look at our paperwork. But the ATF agents declined to do that. Why? I have no idea. Because um, that seems like exactly what they would want to see. Right. But I mean, like, if someone's offering to give you stuff, they may as well check it out. So this, the, the siege at Waco is one of, like, the worst, oh, what is the, the verbiage I'm trying Shootouts? to find? It's one of the worst, like, FBI standoffs in America. Like, like specifically, America? specifically in American, on American soil. Okay. Um, and going through this, I was like, there is, if you're going to place blame, it goes to every single person involved. Because this was a fucking shit show. Hmm. There are so many different ways that they could have done things that would have, like, on both sides, that would have resulted in a lot less death. So... Okay. I don't know why they were like, nope, we don't want to see your paperwork. That's fine. We're cool with it. So they begin surveillance. So they, they get the house that's across the street from the compound, but they didn't cover themselves very well because they were like, oh, we're college students. But they, they were clearly in their 30s. And I know, like, right now, being in your I'm 30s, a young spry lad. Being in your 30s and being a college student is not unheard of. But in the early 90s, sure. it wasn't, wasn't quite as much. It's a little weird. So they're, they're saying that they're in their 30s, but then also the schedule of their activities didn't mesh with any kind of legitimate job or a class schedule. 
So it's like, oh, yep, we're we're in our, in college, but we're here all of the time looking at all of these things. It's fine. We're like, bad college students. That should have been our go-to. Yeah. So nobody really believed their story about being college students because it was not well supported. And they had an undercover agent that was actually in the compound. His name was Robert Rodriguez. And he was totally known to David Koresh while he was there. But he didn't tell, like, he, Koresh didn't let them know that he was aware that they had this undercover agent until the raid. And that's that initial raid in February. So ATF obtains, obtains a search warrant on suspicion that the Branch Davidians were manufacturing guns to have illegal automatic fire capabilities. Uh, former Branch Davidian Mark Bruwalt claimed that Koresh had M16 lower receiver parts, which is the M16 trigger components with a modified AR-15, and this counts as constructive possession of an unregistered machine gun. So I think they most definitely were modifying guns to be illegal automatic weapons. And they were amassing quite a bit, which I think I'm jumping ahead of myself. So using the affidavit filed by Aguilera, the Branch Davidians had that the Branch... Using the affidavit filed by Aguilera that the Branch Davidians had violated federal law, the ATF obtained search and arrest warrants for Koresh and some specific followers on weapons charges citing the large amounts of fire wa- firearms that they had accumulated because like for they had a lot they had a they had a they had a shit ton there was there were many guns the search warrant stated that it must be executed on or before february 28th 1993 between the hours of 6am and 10pm so obviously they're kind of pushing it because this was done february 28th at 9:45am so this is the last possible day they could use the search warrant so the ATF made a claim that Koresh was operating a meth lab. Did I say cream? My brain broke. I... <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I don't know what word you said. The ATF made a claim that Koresh was operating a meth lab in order to establish, establish a drug nexus and try to gain military assets under the war on drugs, which was happening at that time. They did not have a meth lab. That was not a thing. So this was a straight-up lie. They were saying that, like, the National Guard had flown over with, like, thermal blah, 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 and there was, like, a weird hot so they, spot on the compound. So they illegally searched the premises by coming up with a false claim. Not necessarily. Um, because, like, I think the weapons, like, their, their weapons thing, that's legitimate. But, right, but the, they were trying to get additional reinforcements, basically, by saying, oh, well, we're pretty sure he's got a meth lab. And there, there was some different things that they were saying that they, they used to, like, corroborate their idea of there being a meth lab. And one of them was, like, the National Guard had flown over with, um, like, thermal imaging. And there was, like, a weird hot spot on the compound that could be Fireplace. indicative of, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what a, a meth lab shows up on as, <laughs> on thermal readings. But right, it just sounds like they're trying to find a way to eventually get, like, an illegal search and seizure of the compound. Um... That's what the way that I looked at it was that they're they're just trying to get help from people that they don't really have grounds to get help from. Mm-hmm. So the ATF requested assistance from the DEA and the DOD. So DOD, uh-huh. Department of Defense, DEA, drugs, Thanks. blah, blah, blah. It was originally approved, but then the commander of the Special Forces Detachment was like, the fuck? So then the in the end, the ATF only obtained a training site at Fort Fort Hood from February 25th to the 27th for safety inspections of the training lanes and they were given only medical and communications training and equipment. 
So the raid was initially planned for March 1st, but then the ATF claimed that they moved it up a day, so to the 28th, in response to a series of articles that was published in the Waco Tribune Herald. This was titled The Sinful Messiah. The ATF had been trying to prevent this from being published until after the raid, but then they continued to provide the newspaper with different dates of the raid, which I thought it was weird that they were providing them with dates of the raid at all. Why would you do that? But then they were like, oh, it's going to happen on this day. It's going to happen on this day. Oh, just kidding. We don't know when it's going to happen. Oh, maybe it'll happen on this day. And so they were... Like, that doesn't make any sense to me from, like, like a stealth <laughs> operation. Yeah, it really sure. doesn't. It really doesn't. Like, oh, oh yeah, we're going to be big, big old heroes. Be ready for yep, it. Yep, we're going to be we're gonna doing a raid. So if you could just wait till we do this raid to publish this thing. And eventually they were like, well, we don't fucking know when they're going to do the raid. So we're just going to publish it. So that sounds I'm pretty <laughs> sure that has to go against the code of like ethic journalism. If you're publishing something that, you know, full well is going to lead to harm. Uh, well, I don't think this particularly it didn't have anything to do with the raid. Sure. But was like the information that they were given, like, what did like it incite any violence? Like what? I don't think so. I I'm trying to remember what the sinful Messiah was about, but I think it was just about their views. Oh, OK, but I'm, I'm trying. Well, that's to okay. remember. Uh, that's OK, then. Either that or it was, like, about David Crash or something. Um, either way, I feel like they didn't... A, they didn't necessarily need to be giving the newspaper specific dates of this raid. B, if they're going to give them the specific dates, don't jerk them around and give them a bunch and then be like, oh, well, it'll happen at some point. Just don't publish this because, like, that's that's not cool. Right. So... Because what's, what's keeping... What, like my thoughts, too, would be, like, what's keeping them to publish it to force their hand to do something? Uh-huh. Also, like, it's like, if you guys want this thing, let us help you along. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, comes down. ATF tries to execute the raid. Okay. But they have lost the element of surprise. Sure. Because a reporter has been tipped off about the raid. Hmm, maybe that's because you're telling people when you're going to do it. Sort of. Asked directions from a postal carrier... Who just happened to be David Koresh's brother-in-law. That's unfortunate. <laughs> right? That is the perfect storm. So obviously he was like, <coughs> hey, this happened. So then Koresh went up to Rodriguez and was like, he said something about it. He was like, oh, there's going to be a raid. And that was when Rodriguez knew that his cover was blown. So he made an excuse and left the compound. Survivors have said that at this point. I'm surprised that he let him go. I mean... You know what I mean? I, what would he have done? He already knew that well, he was... If you already knew that he was screwed, though, like, why let someone go? Like, that's my thoughts. Like, if I already know, like... He'd been there for a while, so I don't think there was any reason... Like, I don't think holding him would have done him any good. Sure. And oh. David Crash is an interesting individual, which is one of the reasons why I feel like sure. he deserves... It's because I don't have enough background on him. They deserve their whole own thing. Okay. So, survivor, survivors have said that at this point... Uh, selected men were told to arm themselves and to take up defensive positions, and the women and children were told to take cover. So this is Koresh giving these orders. Koresh said that he would try to speak with the agents, but what happened next would depend on the intentions of the agents. So despite knowing that the Branch Davidians were aware that this raid was going to happen, the ATF commander was like, nope, let's just do it anyway. So the ATF, and this is, this is a weird thing, but I was like, why did they do that? So the ATF agents had written their blood type on their arms or their neck after leaving the staging area. This is not standard ATF procedure, but the military personnel was like, oh yeah, if you do this, it's good because then it helps speed up, uh, it, it facilitates speedy blood trans transactions, blood transfusions if you're injured. 
So this. So if you get injured, it's like, oh, I know you're oh. Boop, here you go. They, it feels like they were going into this ready, ready guns for, blazing. Yeah. It is not known who shot first. Obviously, the oh, ATF, it's a shot heard around the world. Okay. Obviously, the ATF claims that the shots came from within the compound, but the surviving Branch Davidians claim that the shots came from outside the compound. The there's a couple of suggested theories rolling around. One of which is that it was an accidental weapons discharge, possibly coming from an ATF agent. We don't know. Um, I mean, I've seen agents do backflips and shoot someone <laughs> in the crowd. God, so yeah, ac- an accidental discharge. Don't perform ap- acrobatics with guns. <clears throat> Rule number one. I mean, yeah, don't do that. Okay. Insert cat song. <clears throat> yes. Thirsty. The second theory, and this one pisses me off because it's a really shitty thing to do. So the ATF had sent in a team of agents to kill the Branch Davidians' dogs in their kennels. Why? So the theory is that that shot was that particular team killing the dogs. Why? Why are you worried about dogs? Why aren't you worried about the people with the guns and such? It, it, yeah, it's, I don't think it does. It's a real shitty thing to do. I it it makes me really angry. It's unforgivable. From a tactical position, I can understand. They're thinking, oh, maybe they'll make these dogs attack us. Sure. From a human pos- human being position, I think no. Like these dogs are just in their kennel. Do they actually have attack dogs, or do they just have dogs? Like, do we know that they actually? I had... didn't find anywhere that said that they had attack dogs. Just that they had dogs in their kennels. Like, so it's even worse. You just killed. Yeah. Your pets are dead. We've got you surrounded. Yeah, it was like. <laughs> and then that's another thing is like if someone was to like surround my home and kill my animals I would lose my fucking mind yeah. like of course I'm gonna fucking shoot you <sighs> anyways so three National Guard helicopters were used as an aerial distraction while this was going on and they didn't fire on the Mount Carmel compound but they all took incoming fire from the Branch Davidians uh, Koresh was wounded on his left side like in his gut within the first couple of shots and within a few minutes of the raid starting, Branch Davidian Wayne Martin had called emergency services pleading for the shooting to stop. 45 minutes into the raid, the shooting had slowed down as the agents were starting to run low on ammo, um, but the shooting continued for two hours. Sheriff Lieutenant Lynch of the McLennan County Sheriff Department negotiated a ceasefire with the ATF. Sheriff Hartwell stated that the ATF only withdrew when they were out of ammo. The Branch Davidians, however, still had plenty of ammo. After the ceasefire, the Davidians allowed the ATF to evacuate their dead and their wounded and retreat, and they so they didn't fire wait, wait, on them. The Davidians allowed them to grab their people? Yeah, the Davidians allowed the ATF to take their dead agents and their wounded agents and That's leave the compound. interesting. And I think this is where it's interesting, where it's like these, and it's it gets into it a little bit later, but you have these religious fanatics where, like, they think they're just defending themselves. They think they're under attack, where it, it's a whole weird thing. Sure. So four agents were killed, 16 were wounded, five Branch Davidians were killed, um, and two of them, it said, were killed by the hands of the Branch Davidians. So I don't know if that's, like, a friendly fire situation, Probably. what the deal was there. Six hours after the ceasefire, Branch Davidian Michael Schroeder was shot by ATF agents who alleged he fired a pistol at agents as he attempted to re-enter the compound. I was a little confused by that because I couldn't find anywhere that said that he exited the compound in order to re-enter it. So I'm not sure if he was 
if he was part out? of the initial raid. He's probably like out of it. Or yeah, back. so I I couldn't exactly figure that out. But I do have a timeline of this particular day. Okay. So 9.45, raid begins. 9.48, Wayne Martin calls 911. 11.30, ceasefire is reached. 4 p.m., first, the first message from Koresh is relayed via radio. 4.55, Michael Schroeder is shot dead. 5, ATF spokesman says gunfire continued sporadically throughout the day. 7.30, Koresh is interviewed by CNN. The FBI instructs CNN not to conduct any further interviews. 8.15, ATF spokeswoman says negotiations continue and the gunfire has ended. 10, four children exit the compound. 10.05, Koresh talks for 20 minutes about his beliefs on the radio and states that he is the most seriously wounded out of all of the Branch Davidians that are in the compound. So, ATF agents established contact with Koresh and the others that are inside the compound after they withdrew. The, a- the FBI took command at this point as a result of the death of federal officers because four agents were killed. Yeah, so now it becomes a much so, more serious issue. The FBI sends in their hostage rescue team, which was commanded or headed by Commander Richard Rogers, who had been criticized for often overriding the site commander. And he was involved in. What does that mean, overriding the site commander? So the site commander was like, this is what we're going to do. And he was like, we're going to do what I say. And you, Good, he's a team player. You can't, Nothing says <laughs> lower body count than just going yeah. off on your own. And listeners can't see it, but I was just waving the bird all over because I imagine that's what he's doing. I saw it flying. <laughs> we're going to do whatever I say. Um, and he was involved in, and I'm going to talk about this sometime, so I'm making note I'm also calling this, uh, in Ruby Ridge, which was a similar yes. situation... And that one is super interesting because it actually happened in Idaho. So I'm just waiting for the appropriate time to Good discuss Good old this. local. Yep. <laughs> Good old local to roll around. Um, and that was another shit show because there were just people were killed that didn't need to be killed. That just escalated the thing. Um, and he was criticized because this was kind of his, his deal. Mm-hmm. So he mobilized two tactical teams to the same site. So he mobilized the hostage rescue team and the negotiation team. So this created pressure to resolve the situation tactically because there was a lack of... Or no, maybe he sent two hostage rescue teams. Either way, he sent two teams. So that created a lot of pressure to resu- resolve the situation quickly because both of these teams were there and there was a lack of reserves. Okay. So if they were needed anywhere else, well, I mean, they're all in Waco right now. So what are you going to do? So it created this, like, oh, got to get it done. Come on, let's get through it. So at first, the Davidians had telephone contact with local news media, and Koresh gave some phone interviews, but then the FBI cut off their contact to the outside world. Oh, that's always good. For the next 51 days, communication with those in the compound was by telephone by a group of 25 FBI negotiators. That's a lot of negotiators. It it was. That is a a, a little excessive. No wonder they were pressured. They're like, they're all gone! In the first few days, an agreement was reached that the Branch Davidians would peacefully leave the compound if a message by Koresh was broadcast on national radio. So the broadcast was made. I think it was it was some sort of like a, a Christian broadcast network that it was broadcast on. So they make the broadcast. And then Koresh says, nope, I can't leave. God told me I have to stay here and wait. Okay. 
So then the negotiators are able to facilitate the release of 19 children. So these are, they're between the ages of five months and 12 years old, but they, they all come without their parents. So it's just children. Okay. So this leaves 98 people this inside. Mm -hmm. After interviewing the children for hours, and I'm like, hours, which is not a good negotiation or not a good interview tactic for children. Right. They allege that the children have been physically and sexually abused long before the standoff ever happened. And they use this as justification for the later use of tear gas. Which I, I go back and forth. I feel like there probably was physical and sexual abuse. Um, especially because one of Koresh's things was that he's like, I am entitled to have 140 wives. Not all of them were over the age of 18. Many of them were minors. A lot of his, he had lots of children. Many of them were fathered with women that were minors. And I, I listened to a couple of different things, and there was one where somebody, I think, like, some of the children were put into foster care, and they were, like, they'd go to their foster home, and they'd ask their foster parents, like, oh, do you have a spanking room? Like, is that what the basement is for? Is that a spanking room? And so I, I definitely feel like there was probably some abuse that was going on. Something, yeah. But they don't have any concrete evidence. So, anyway... They send a video camera into the compound, and Koresh makes a tape introducing his many children and many wives, some of which, some of his wives are minors, stating that no one here is a hostage and that everyone is staying of their own free will. There's also a message from Koresh, and according to the video, there are still 23 children in the compound. So Koresh continues to, neg to negotiate more time for their, like, oh, we'll leave at this point. Um, allegedly so that he could write religious documents that he said needed to be completed before his surrender. So while the siege is going on... I just find it interesting that that's a priority <laughs> well, at this point. Remember, he thinks he is a prophet. I know. I know. <laughs> so, just... as the siege... Take flock, damn it! As the siege wears on, the FBI develops into two factions, and that's basically, like, the negotiators and the hostage rescue team. So the negotiators want to negotiate and find a, like, let's figure this out, we'll talk it out, blah, yeah. blah, blah. The rest want to use force. Sure. They're like, we, we need a rescue. We're going to go in. Yeah, so they begin using increasingly aggressive methods to try to force the Davidians out. So, for example, sleep deprivation. So they do this by all-night broadcasts of jet planes, pop music, chanting, and the screams of rabbits being slaughtered. Which, how is this fucking legal? How? I mean, other than the fact that it's 1993 and I didn't bother to look how up... How did someone record that? That's a good question. That's the next question. That's, the, that's my it's, main question. Who records a slaughter of rabbits? Everything is terrible. Like, this This is not okay. This is... No. When do you need a soundbite for that? Like, uh, <laughs> If you're trying not to torture people, a good way to do it is to not... Try to sleep deprive them. Because that makes them more irritable and... And irrational. Yep. And if you already have somebody who you believe to be unstable, do not deprive them of sleep. Sure. That is a terrible plan. But... So, they have now, they're bringing in nine Bradley fighting vehicles. I was going to say, it sounds more like they're doing this in order, because they're, they're praying to do a full-on assault. Mm -hmm. So they want them to be in a fully weakened state, so that way they have less casualties on their end. Mm-hmm. 
So nine Bradley fighting vehicles carrying tear gas grenades and ferret rounds come in, as well as five engineer vehicle, five combat engineer vehicles, and they begin patrolling the compound. The armored vehicles were used to destroy perimeter fencing, outbuildings, and to crush the cars in the compound that belonged to the Davidians. They repeatedly drove over the graves of one of the Davidians killed earlier in the raid. Okay. Despite the protests of the Davidians and the negotiators, because shockingly, desecrating the grave of someone that has died is not a good negotiation tactic. Yeah. Wow, I can't believe it. <laughs> like, like, all it, it sounds like they really just wanted to make them make the first move, so they had every reason to just outright mm-hmm. slaughter them. So there's just, there's so many things here <coughs> that I was like, why did this happen? This was, this no, this was bad. So two of the three water storage tanks were damaged during the raid. Eventually, the FBI cut off all power and electricity to the compound. So the Branch Davidians were surviving on collected rainwater and MRE rations that they had stockpiled. Crash ordered a group of 11 followers to leave. They were immediately arrested as material witnesses, and one was charged with conspiracy to murder. So, you know, that's that's super encourages other people to leave when they see that everyone is being arrested. The negotiators were disturbed by the children's willingness to stay, Mm -hmm. and they weren't prepared to deal with the Davidians' religious zeal. So as the siege goes on, the children become aware that an earlier group of children that had left with some women were immediately separated from the women, and the women were arrested. So of course they don't want to leave. Because now they're afraid that they're going to get taken away Mm -hmm. and separated. Uh, several scholars that study apocalypticism, which is like end of times, blah, blah, blah. That sounds like fun. Because, I mean, the Branch Davidians, this particular group, they were an end of times cult. Uh-huh. They were, they thought that this was the apocalypse. Um, so they attempted to, per- to persuade the FBI that the siege tactics being used would only reinforce their belief that they were a part of the biblical end of times. And that what was happening was cosmically cosmically significant. I would say they're not wrong because seeing as there are thoughts and you making them sleep deprived and all this other stuff, you're almost feeding into their. Well, ideology. also, if if your prophet is telling you that this is what the end of times is going to look like, we're going to be persecuted, and suddenly your home is being surrounded and you're being shot out, shot at. Of course, yeah. you think this is the end of times. Shot out of a cannon. Uh, yes. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> of of course, they think this is the end of times. Like. I feel like you don't need a scholar to tell you this. But also, if a scholar is telling you this, maybe sit down and listen. Anyways, um, so this increases the likelihood of a violent and a deadly outcome. Sure. So Koresh became increasingly more difficult to negotiate with. He proclaimed that he was the second coming of Christ and that he was commanded by his father, so God, to remain in the compound. So he has basically stated, I'm not coming out. God has told me to stay forever. So one week prior to the April 19th assault, the FBI considers using snipers to kill Koresh and several other key branch Davidians. Right, to kind of get rid of the head. But they were concerned that this could lead to a mass suicide similar to Jonestown. So Jonestown was in the like late 70s. Um, so they were concerned that something like that could happen I mean, again. why would they be concerned about everyone's safety at this point? I mean, yeah, more? also... They're more concerned about their image at this point. Koresh had repeatedly denied any plans for a mass suicide, and that was corroborated by people that had left the compound. They were like, yeah, no, there's there's no kind of preparation for this. Like, we're not going to do a mass suicide. No one's going to do a mass suicide. It's not a thing that's going to happen. 
Well, so are they trying to live through the apocalypse? Isn't that like, I mean... I isn't, isn't that normally the goal? The it's, apocalypse is here, but it's dying! the whole thing. <laughs> so, newly appointed Attorney General Janet Reno, which I feel a Damn little Janet. bit bad for her in this particular situation, because can you imagine being in your job for a week and then being like, so let's talk to you about this siege that's going on. Welcome to your job. <laughs> anyway, so... Janet Reno approves the FBI recommendations for an assault to be mounted uh. after being told that there were that children were being abused at Mount Carmel. Reno made the case to President Clinton, but he recalled um, a similar incident in Arkansas in 1985, and this was with the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord. They did a blockade. They didn't have any set time frame. They basically just, like, waited it out, got it done, and no one died. Sure, because they probably waited until they literally ran out of supplies, and it's like, well, it's over. So President Clinton was like, that seems like a good idea. Like, no one died. Maybe let's try that. Reno was like, well, the hostage rescue team is tired of waiting. Which... The is fuck? Not a valid excuse. I mean, that is and, no. And, like to confirm here, do you say like, the president basically said like this is a good plan, let's go with that, and they're like, yeah, fuck so the president's plan. President Clinton was like, well, we've done this before and it worked, and like there was no loss of life. Like maybe that's something we should consider doing again. And Janet Reno was like, well, the, the FBI is just tired of waiting. So that was one of the things that she said. Um, I'm the sorry, other blank theater right now. That's what's happening. <laughs> Um, the other was that it was expensive to continue to have the FBI at this siege, which then maybe, why did you deploy so many fucking people there? Yeah. Also, <laughs> um, the, she stated that the Branch Davidians could hold out longer, like they had more supplies and everything to be able to hole up in their compound longer than the Covenant, the Sword, and the Armor Lord. Um, also, the possibility of child sexual abuse and mass suicide. So finally, President Clinton says, he just tells her, like, well, if you think this is the right thing to do, then do it. Which, that's kind of a cop-out, but whatever. That is a cop-out. It sounds like he <laughs> swiped himself for the blame and he didn't want to... Mm -hmm. And <sighs> this is where it gets weird, because, like, over the next several months, Janet Reno's reasoning as to why she approved the final gas attack changes. And it goes from, like, oh, well, the FBI had told me this, this, and this, and blah, blah, blah. And it, like, kind of comes down to where she's like, well, they told me that there was children being sexually abused in this compound. And then the FBI is like, we didn't have any evidence of any children being sexually abused in the compound during this time. And so it's like, I feel like there's just, like, a whole lot of people that are making a whole lot of shit up. So we don't actually know. Did anyone lose any of their jobs? I don't know. At the end of this. So I feel like we don't actually know what is going on. Like, we don't really know if the FBI actually thinks that there's children being abused in the compound. Because they've said yes, they've said no. So, I personally feel like they were, because we already know that Koresh has produced children it's with lives. girls. Like, the girls. They are not women. They are children. Yep. And based on some of the things that some of the children have said, they probably were being physically abused. So, April 1993... Explosives were used to puncture holes in the walls of the building so they could pump tear gas inside to flush the Branch Davidians out. The plan was to increase the amount of gas over two days. The Branch Davidians were notified via loudspeaker that they were coming into the compound with these vehicles 
but there would not be an armed assault, and so they asked them not to fire on the vehicles. The FBI did have permission to return fire, but instead, when the Branch Davidians opened fire, they just increased the amount of gas they were using, which, that, I don't know, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. They're like, so we're coming in to, like, knock down your walls and pump your buildings full of gas. Could you not shoot at us? No, I'm going to fucking shoot at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, at that point, it's like... (laughs) Uh, why? What why did would they I, think was gonna happen? Why would I not do this thing? You're attacking me now. Yeah. Anyone that's getting attacked is going to reciprocate said behavior. Yeah. So after nine hours, no one has left the compound. Uh, they were, they kind of holed up into a concrete block building and they were using gas masks. So around noon, three fires break out in the compound in different parts of the building almost simultaneously. Okay. So the government maintains that they were started intentionally by the Branch Davidians. Survivors maintain that they were started by the assault because they were using grenades and, like, pyrotechnic uh, weapons. Yeah, but at the same time, that was definitely a synchronized... I'm I'm personally for me... Hold on, There's, there's more. So they were using grenades and pyrotechnic weapons and blah, blah, blah. So the the survivors say that it was started either intentionally by the assault or accidentally just because of the things that were being used. There, the FBI had, like, some bugs in the compound, and there's, like, weird... How'd they get those? Whatever. I, I, I don't I'll, never, I'll never know. I, I saw one thing that they, like, sent them in with, like, milk cartons, and, like, I don't know. Um, maybe Rodriguez put them around there. Who knows? There's no way to know. Couldn't possibly look this up. Um, I'm being sarcastic. There's weird, like, transcripts of them being like, well, he said to pour it. Okay, pour it over here. How many cans do we have? And it's, um, and then there's like another one that was like, well, do, there, was, there was two bottles of Coleman propane in the basement. Did we, did we pour those already? So, I don't know. It, it sounds like maybe the Branch Davidians were pouring gasoline trying to start a fire, but it also is totally logical that it could have started based on what was going on outside. Why would they have started a fire? What would that have accomplished for them? Fuck if I know. Yeah. <laughs> for me, like, if they have three fires break out all at once, that sounds like a synchronized strike. Like, that, that just to me, that's just what it sounds like. If they all happen simultaneously in multiple parts of the building... But what I was... Well, it's almost, like, nearly simultaneously. Okay. But what from what I was reading, it seemed like if, if they were starting these fires, it was because David Koresh told them to. Sure. I mean, of course. And so, I mean, as far as, like, the situation, I don't think we will ever know how those fires Purify started. Purify the air with I, smoke. I don't, more smoke. I don't think we will ever know how those fires actually started. Where was I? Oh, okay, so the fire spread quickly, and only nine people left the building. So there's still a whole bunch of people in the building. Sure. That is now on fire and full of tear gas. How many people are in this compound? Um, at this point, 35, uh, I don't remember how many people were in the compound to begin with, but, like, 35 people have left, left. total. And then nine more people. Um, I believe those are included. And five in are dead. Yeah, that six are dead. Because there six were six are... killed on that first day. Five in the initial assault, and then one uh, afterwards. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so the fire spreads. This building is now on fire, full of smoke, and full of tear gas. So it's a good situation. The remaining Branch Davidians were either buried alive by rubble, suffocated by the effects of the fire and carbon monoxide, or shot. According to the FBI, Koresh's right-hand man, Stephen Schneider, shot him and then shot himself. Autopsies show that some women and children were found beneath a fallen 
concrete wall. They died of skull injuries, which was I would assume is from the wall falling on them. Yeah. Other children were found locked in spasmatic death poses consistent with cyanide, cyanide poisoning, which happens when chemicals in the tear gas burn. So the FBI is saying, no, 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 it was put in there soon enough that all of that stuff should have been should have dissipated before it would have had a chance to burn. But this obviously shows otherwise. Yeah. Or they had cyanide. 20 of them were shot, including five children under the age of 14. A three-year-old was stabbed in the chest. What? The medical examiner believes that these were mercy killings because there was no escape. Like, all routes of escape were blocked by fire or rubble. So the medical examiner thinks that this was the Branch Davidians trying to keep people from having a long, agonizing death basically. Sure. So 12 of the surviving Branch Davidians were charged with several charges, and there was like a whole big long list. Um, one had charges d- dismissed completely by a plea bargain. Four were acquitted on all charges. Um, all were acquitted of murder-related charges, but five were convicted on lesser charges, and eight were convicted on firearms charges. As of 2007, um, so July 2007, all Branch Davidians had been released from prison. Okay. And one of the things that I thought was interesting is that a lot, like, several of the surviving Branch Davidians were, like, there was some, like, Canadian nationals and British nationals and Australian, national, Australian nationals. So, like, people from all over. Came to this place. Uh-huh. It's crazy. And there were some, like, various things where it's, like, references, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, Timothy McVeigh, who was the Oklahoma City bomber. He specifically referenced the Waco incident as primary motivation for his attack. And he carried it out, his, his attack on the, um, the federal buildings. Oh. Well, shit, I'm going to have to talk about the Oklahoma Cons- City bombing sometime. Consider me ignorant. <laughs> so, he, he bombed a, he used like a truck bomb on a federal building in Oklahoma. Uh. And it was devastating. Like, it, Wow. And I, like, I vaguely remember this happening, because this happened in 1995, so I was only four. I was two! I, but I, I remember, like, I do have memories of news coverage, because, I mean, the coverage went on for a while. So, like, I, I do remember watching coverage and seeing, like, the building go down. Like, it was, it was crazy. Anyway, so April 1995, which was two years after the Waco fire and, the, like, the final assault, in March of 1993... McVeigh actually drove from Arizona to Waco to observe the standoff, and he was photographed with other protesters by the FBI. And a court reporter claims to have seen him selling anti-government bumper stickers outside the Waco courthouse. All of the other things where they're like, oh, maybe this is a connection, seemed pretty coincidental and circumstantial. Um, mm-hmm. Like Some people have tried to connect the Columbine shooting to it, to Waco, because it happened on the same day. But it also coincides with the birthday of Adolf Hitler, which I think the shooters had put in their whatever bullshit writing that they had talked their about. manifesto. Yeah. I don't think they necessarily had a manifesto per se, like yeah. other, other people do, but I think that was something that they had more referenced. Everything else seemed like, well, that's a weird coincidence, but I don't think that's related. Hmm. So that the resulting, the results of this was that there was, I think I said... You said a lot. I think on that final day, in the fire, 
have it in my notes. Do, do, do. Seventy-six Branch Davidians died. Of all ages. On yeah, on that that last day in the fire. The final one. So yeah, seventy-six Branch Davidians, men, women, children died. So at the very end, we had about the ATF 82. did not lose anyone on that final day. Yeah. So, so the 82. end. The end. We have four dead ATF agents and sixteen wounded in that initial battle. Mm-hmm. From the initial from the initial raid to the final assault. 82 Branch Davidians are dead. Six on that first day, 76 on that last day. That's insane. And from the stuff that I was listening to, like, people that live in Waco, like, it's, they don't talk about it. Sure. I mean, I don't imagine this is, like, open for discussion, because it's, Mm -hmm. like... And it was not that long ago, either. No. I mean, it's 25 years? Yeah, 25 years. Yeah. My God, it's me. People still know people that were there. Or people that died there, or people that were there and then decided that wasn't for them and left. Mm-hmm. So and they and then I mean obviously like if you're a city you don't want to be known for that. Right. I mean maybe it's just because I am who I am. But whenever you, anyone is like oh Waco I'm like oh yeah the Branch Davidians like. Waco oh yes. I feel like I'm in the minority though. Right. Um, and something that sticks in my mind which is stupid. There's like a like a hidden track on the Bowling for Soup album. Oh, God, I can't remember what it's called. Pulling for Soup. Man, that really dates <laughs> us. Oh. It's whatever album. If there really is anyone out there that doesn't know Bowling for Soup, please let me know and we can. Well, did they have a song for, like, was it, uh, uh, it was, uh, what was it, Super High? What was it? The one with the, the kid superheroes and the floating school? I'm sure Bowling for Soup oh. had a song for that. No, I think I know what you're talking about. Um, Sky High. Sky High. That was what there, it was called. Okay, I gotta, I gotta remember what this album was called. Because this particular album, it was the one that the song 1985 was on. Which was like one of their big hit ones. The, the 19. Uh-huh. Which, FYI, it's a good album. Shut your face. <laughs> <laughs> I um, like that album. Drunk Enough to Dance. I think that's what it was. Uh, no. No, it wasn't. I think it was a hangover you don't deserve. Yeah, it was. Um, so this was 2004, and there's a hidden track on there where they're doing this, like, weird thing where they're, there's, because one of their songs talks about, like, uh, this person wants you back or whatever. And so they're just, like, riffing, and they just keep saying, like, blah, 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 wants you back. And one of their things is they, like, they say, the Br- Branch Davidians want you back. And I remember listening to that as, like, a 13-year-old being like, I need to know what that is. <laughs> and thus, you and then know I learned about Then I learned about the Branch Davidians. <laughs> oh. And I think... Like, growing up, I had heard about Waco because, I mean, I was two when this happened. So, well, I guess I was technically one because my birthday was in July. But, so it was, this was being talked about, like, up until probably even the Oklahoma City bombing. And then afterwards, because since Timothy McVeigh was like, oh, that was a thing, that's why I did this, blah, blah, blah. So, like, it was talked about throughout my youth, which is probably one of the reasons why it also sticks in my brain. Hmm. But, yeah, so that's... That's the Waco Siege, and the Branch Davidians deserve their own segment to talk about their stuff, because I didn't want to smush it all in there, because that'd be a lot. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Unfortunate. <laughs> it's crazy. That's... It's crazy nuts. Shall we roll for next episode? <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. I need... <laughs> You're like, oh, fuck. There you go. Oh, thanks. doodle doodle loop. So today I have 
I have a set that I put together myself. They are what? Chessex Frosted Dice. Ooh. Where I didn't want to have, like, the Frosted Dice are, it took a while for them to grow on me. Because when they first Wait, come. you can grow dice? Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> when they first come, they're, like, powdery. And, like, <laughs> all the pictures that I looked at, I was like, I don't Ooh. like those. They look weird. But and then once, they actually come? Once you, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> That's I really hope you said. heard that bit in the very beginning that That's we put. That's what she said. Um, <laughs> they like once you like roll them around in your hands a little bit, and like that weird powdery stuff comes off. They look like really nice. They've got this like sea glass finish on them, and they're really cool. And I liked all of the colors, but I didn't want that many different sets of dice. So what I did is I just got individual dice to make a full poly set with an extra d twenty because you know you got to be able to roll advantage and disadvantage. <laughs> yeah, always. <laughs> And so I just got all the colors and put them together. So incidentally, if anyone has a clear D8 that's, you know, Chessex Frosted that has the white ink, let me know. Because the clear oh. one that I have is the only one that has black ink, and it's a little weird. I could re-ink it, but since it's clear, you can see through it, so it would still have the, like, black show through the other side. I like the coloration of that. I really do. I, I really like the Frosted It's effect. a nice translucent... translucent <laughs> Yeah! Yeah, throw that word away. It's a nice, not <laughs> opaque dice. Um, no, it is. It reminds me of like quartz. I it think. is opaque. Like... The opposite of opaque is sheer. <laughs> Earth science. Everyone. I really wish you could We're see. Learning some new stuff. Really wish you could see the face he just made. Well, I mean, it's not like totally. It's not opaque transparent. That's why I say because... it's translucent because it's like. No, you're right. It's opaque. It's fully opaque. I can't see. You can any... see through it vaguely. So, like, Decker is wearing a red shirt, and if I hold it up to his shirt, you can see red through it, but you can't, like, see through it. Yes. If that makes sense. Yes. Anyways, I'm going to roll this. The thing. more you know. This is brought to you by the... Uh, I got a four. NPR. You got a four. I got a four. Is that history? I feel like that's history. No. I don't think that's history. I no, think history is think... the bomb left. I think it's history. Is it? It's history. Oh. History and education. Oh, the next one's entertainment. Five is entertainment, I think. But... Six is entertainment. What's five? Get your life together. Tech. Science and technology. I don't think... Have anyone else done that one? No, I was thinking about that earlier. Okay. You haven't rolled that at all. You got an eight. Okay. Oh, you got an eight! <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Now we can... Now... You got a wild. <laughs> yeah, now there can be tech involved, maybe. I'm not sure. We'll figure it out. <coughs> oh, yeah, sorry. I was rolling with... Um... I rolled a D8 to figure out which dice I was going to roll with. Because <laughs> my bag, the, so Katie made me a pouch, which is awesome, um, but it holds eight sets of dice. So I rolled a D8 to figure out which set of dice I was rolling with. And I rolled with these kind of pearlescent ones. I rolled with them before. I think I'm talking about them, but nice pearlescent with like, uh, what's that? Like a like a lame dirt gold so it's color. Let me see. It's like, so... If you ever look at any of the Kraken dice, like, the gold that they use looks very similar, where it's a very yellow gold. Yeah. And it's it's not my favorite kind of gold. It's almost like a mustard. Yeah. But cool. If you don't like that, I can re-ink it to whatever color you want, but... I feel like we need to have a video version of this, and it's like those old, like, very late shows where it has, like, from 1995, and you have someone broadcasting, oh showing like, all the dice. Like, but if you buy this, you can get several sets. <laughs> If you order now, we'll even throw a set of for, steak knives. For, for, for what's, what? 20. 1999. No, Just no. 27 easy payments. 20 installments of 10 cents. Yeah. God, I, oh, I watched so many infomercials as a child. Man, I love the mattress ones for some reason. I used to stay up really late and watch those Infomercials are weird, and I, I. Do we even have infomercials anymore? I was just thinking of that. Like, we don't have regular TV, so I don't know if infomercials are as big a thing as they were. 
Huh. Let us know. Are infomercials still a thing? I feel like maybe they are, but I also do a bit, don't know. We could do a bit about how infomercials... Yeah. Good words. <laughs> this has not been my day here with Decorate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one that's been drinking. What's wrong with you? Everything. <laughs> that's, that's all I got. We don't have time to get it. And I think on that note, I think we're good to roll yep. on out of here. So <laughs> Roll on out. Hey! I'm full well, puns. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. Come back next week to find out what the fuck we're talking about. Yeah. Bye. Bye. If you've got something to say, you can find us on Anchor at anchor.fm slash WTF pod. You can email us at wtf.podcast.mail at gmail.com or find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WTFAYTA podcast. That's WTFAYTA. That's our acronym. Podcast. Our music is by Decker Hinckley, and our artwork is by Kirby Morfitt. We were rolling. Looks like the audio is okay. So we're good to go whenever you, uh, you'll up to it. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You were very Kermit the Frog there for a moment. (laughs) I don't know. Don't don't give me an audience. I'll be too much. (laughs) I'll keep coughing to a minimum. Okay.